we're looking at how can you know if you're right. And when I say right, I mean correct in your doctrine. And if you've been missing this particular series, uh, tonight will be part three, but you might want to go back and check it out uh, because it's, it's very useful, it's very practical, because when you make a, a, a question statement like this, how can you know if, if you're right? You do know that in the world that you and I live in, uh, the world uh, right now to some degree tolerates us to exist because they think we're all wrong or we're the reason why things are wrong. They see us the only way that they can, and that is in the wrong light. They don't understand us. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand Jesus. And when they open up a Bible, if they ever do, they don't see it. Do you remember when you first opened up a Bible without being a Christian? And it was crazy. Let's admit it. It's like, what, what, what am I reading? But when you start reading it, and God goes to move the words on the page start to come alive and they, they start to take root in your head and then you got a bunch of it in your head and then God sends a trial and it knocks it down out of your head and into your heart Amen. and it becomes part of your life. And we've been looking at the power and the ministry and the difference that Jesus Christ is from the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, over the angels, over the prophets, and over Moses himself, the book of Hebrews, authored by a Jew. We think it's Paul, but that's irrelevant. His, whoever wrote it didn't put his name to it, but he's a Hebrew speaking to Hebrews who became followers of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so he took this book and he's warning them uh, to make sure you know what it is you claim to believe. And we left off, and I want to show this again before we dive back into the study because it's so, I think it so sets the mood. We ended a few weeks ago with this video. We're going to start the message tonight with it. So guys, if you would. The Hebrew word means dwelling place. It was where God dwelled with his people, and its elements show us how to relate with God. After delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God gave them detailed instructions on how to build this dwelling. Once constructed, the Lord descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. Curtains separated the whole tabernacle from the rest of the Israelite encampment. In this courtyard was the tabernacle's largest piece of furniture, the altar. A wooden box covered with bronze. The altar was shaped as a square, measuring approximately seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. From top to bottom, it stood about four and a half feet. Hollow space inside the box allowed priests to insert coals. Above was a bronze grating where priests would lay animals for sacrifice. A horn of one piece with the altar stood at each corner. Four bronze rings under the ledge allowed one to insert carrying poles so the Israelites could transport the altar. Between the altar and the tent of meeting was a bronze laver. 
priests had to cleanse their hands and feet here before offering sacrifices or entering the tent. Within the inner tent stood one of the most recognized elements of the whole tabernacle, the menorah, a lampstand with three branches that rose on each side to create a total of seven lamps. This solid gold lampstand weighed about 75 pounds. Each lamp was a small cup that the priest would fill with oil to fuel the light. Each branch in the middle of the shaft had almond blossoms. The menorah served a most practical purpose. It was the only source of light in the tent, an eternal light that was never to go out. Also in the tent stood a wooden table covered with gold. On it was to always remain the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence symbolizes God's desire to be with his people. Incense was to burn continuously on the altar. God instructed the priests to replenish the incense every evening and morning. A curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The menorah, the altar of incense, and the bread of the presence were all in the holy place, but outside this veil. Like the curtains covering the tent of meeting, this veil was blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim, a kind of angel. Beyond the veil at the far end of the tabernacle was the ark. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. It was nearly four feet long. Its width and height were about two feet, three inches. Like the altar, the ark had rings and poles so the Israelites could carry it as they traveled. Within the ark were the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Later, it contained a sample of manna and the rod that bloomed to reinforce Aaron's leadership. The mercy seat was the ark's lid and features prominently on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. At each end stood a cherub facing the other with its wings outspread. This cover was made of solid gold. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat, symbolizing that the nation's sins were covered for another year. While only the high priest would see it, the mercy seat was the key symbol of atonement that God would forgive his people. Though daily sacrifices on the altar were necessary for payment of sin, it was only through the mercy seat on the day of atonement that the stain of sin was washed away. While priests had to make repeated sacrifices, one man offered a sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all. When Jesus, the Messiah, died, he sprinkled his own blood before God, securing atonement forever for all who would trust in him. Jesus cleanses us, makes us pure, and enables us to rightly approach the Lord. He tore the veil that kept distance between Israel and the Lord. God dwelled among the Israelites through a tent. Now, he dwells within his people through the Spirit. That's an awesome display, an awesome representation. But if you don't know your Bible, you'll miss the connection. You might look at that and think, wow, that's obviously anciently historic stuff out of the Old Testament. I think I remember reading parts of that stuff. And by the way, who hasn't heard of the Ark of the Covenant 
I mean, in, even Indiana Jones knows about that thing. And yet, at the end, the, the narrator uh, just reads or states things as they are, as a matter of fact, but we probably don't appreciate the connection. Everything that you saw so well done represented in that model speaks about what was found in the Old Testament scriptures. Follow now the pathology of this. What, what is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, God gave to Moses, not only the Ten Commandments, but the instructions to build all what you just saw in incredible detail. And not only that, the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon those craftsmen to make those things. But the pathology goes back into time. In fact, into where there is no time. The scriptures tell us, and eventually we'll get to it in the book of Hebrews in chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, where everything you just saw on your screen are representations of what was in the wilderness and eventually came to rest in Jerusalem at the temple. All of that was all symbolic based on what Moses was given regarding the actual elements in heaven above. The altar, the ark, the veil, the laver, basin, bread, menorah, all of that. Don't think that that's some sort of an earthly invention. It's, 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 it's not something Moses made up. The Bible says that God showed Moses what was in heaven and he said make representation of it here on earth. And so when you see the cherubim bowing down and you see the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the presence of God that was manifested by the Shekinah, the word is Shekinah, the glory of God, when it's there emanating, all of it was a picture, all of it was a type. In other words, God gave a little sample for us to relate to as to where we would be going to spend eternity forever. Now that is just his location, so to speak, his dwelling place. The new heaven, the new earth, God's home will come down, the Bible tells us, and reside just, just over the revised or restored new earth. What you and I will experience is the world of perfection that the best we can relate to is our imagination that was up to the moment Adam and Eve crashed everything. The beauty, the, the creation of it all, incredibly fantastic. Let's stand together. I'll read all the verses for time's sake, and, but if you'd follow along. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, now verses 1 through 10. Then indeed, even the first covenant, think about that, the Old Testament, had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, or menorah, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, 
that was from the wilderness, Aaron's rod that had budded, it was an almond bud, and the tablets of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. The reason why it's called a mercy seat is because that lid is where the blood of Yom Kippur, the atoning blood of the perfect lamb, was put on top of that or poured onto that golden lid. Can you imagine? I mean, I know this sounds kind of grotesque, but not. The brilliant, highly polished gold receiving the brilliance of freshly spilled blood, the red and the gold, speak of your salvation purchased in Christ. Quite remarkable. Of these things we cannot speak in detail, verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That happened all the time. Verse 7, though, says, but into the second part, the high priest, that's the Holy of Holies, went in only once a year. Not without blood, by the way. (laughs) If he was to walk in without blood, he would die which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating or showing or announcing this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or made available to us while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. Look at that. It's in your Bible. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. In other words, you know this by now, you guys have been coming on Wednesday nights, an earthly priest is a sinner nonetheless. He may be a priest, but he's still a sinner. And he's got to make atonement for his own sins before he can represent the people. That's the Old Testament covenant. And if you're living in that kind of a covenant... It's only good once a year. You got to wait around for Yom Kippur to come again. But when Jesus came, well, that's another story. Verse 10 says, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. The time of reformation is a statement regarding the coming of the Messiah, when Jesus Christ would fulfill all of what was laid out in Scripture. Father, bless tonight the going forth of your word we ask. Prepare our hearts and our minds. And Lord, may we remember what we hear from you tonight. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated, church. So as we've been looking at this in your note-taking, you should be building this list of arguments as we are now in part three of our message, how can you know if you're right? And from chapter eight, beginning at verse seven, the the whole train of logic uh, flows. So chapter eight, verse seven, we learned uh, to know how to ask the right questions. Uh, You can read that chapter later, but all of it was a setup to where we're going and you would want to read or to hear what God is saying and ask the right questions about that. Why? Because God gives the answers. God wants you to have the answers, friend, in life. You are not to walk around this world regarding biblical truth not knowing the answers. He gave us the answers right here. The reason why if you and I lack the answers, it's because we lack this. Simple as that. Second thing we saw, chapter 8, verse 9, is that we know... 
what answers are available to us in the scripture. We know what's there. It's an open book test, we would say in school. Verse 10 of the 8th chapter, we learn this. Know that there's only one road. There's only, you know, listen, there's one road into heaven. Somebody has said, uh, right, in a pantheistic view, you know what pantheistic means, right? Pan, pantheistic is, uh, I believe in all, uh, I, can't, I can't pick one thing, so I'll believe in a little bit of everything and cover all the bases, so my conscience feels good about that. That's self-deception, Pantheism is to include all kinds of worship. So somebody has wisely said, all roads lead to God. Listen, all roads do lead to God. Better read the fine print, though. (laughs) All roads lead to God in the day of judgment. Everybody must appear before God in judgment. But there's only one road that leads to heaven. Big difference. Everybody will stand before God in the end. But not all will enter into heaven. Only through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world will you be granted entrance into heaven itself. And then we saw also last time together is know that God, that he's the God of answers. He's the God of answers. We've got the question, he's got the answers. And everything. Church family, listen. Listen. That might sound glib. Oh, yeah, okay, right. What are you supposed to say? God's got the answers. Well, how come he hasn't told me the answer yet to my question? Maybe he's waiting to see if you're really serious about the question. Maybe your question's a, maybe it's a bad question. Sometimes there's bad prayers. You know, you know, what, you know what a bad prayer is? Oh, God, if you just, if you, if you just have me win the lottery, I'll help, I'll help poor kids all over the world. And and God hears you, but he knows, he actually knows what you're going to do with it, which tragically, I think it's 74% of lottery winners wind up being suicidal, drunk, divorced, or broke. Did you know that? It's not good to win the lottery. It's it's destructive. But before we get into the fifth and, uh, well, really it's the fifth argument for tonight, Um, write this down if you would. It's always good to have this. Uh, in your heart and mind. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before, that's a reference to the Old Testament. I really appreciate that. I love reading the New Testament here in Romans, speaking about the Old Testament. These things were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Uh, 21 centuries ago, at the time of the writing of the book of Romans, which we're studying on Sundays, the only scriptures they had was the Old Testament. Now, now look, I, I'm not here to make anybody feel bad. I'm throwing myself under the bus with you right now, and it's this. Imagine if we took your Bible right now and completely removed the New Testament, and you didn't have it anymore. According to the book of Romans, you can read the Old Testament and land at the exact same place tonight from scriptures if you had the New Testament to confirm it. Did you hear what I said? This is huge. If Paul and Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and all of the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd century believers, all they had was the Old Testament. When they opened up the Old Testament, they went out and preached Christ. They read the Old Testament. They got so motivated that they had to preach in Jesus' name. 
Could you do that? You're supposed to be able to do that. I'm supposed to be able to do that. We forget. We think when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Thomas Nelson or Baker just pumped, Tyndale just started pumping out Bibles. There was a Gideon there. That's what it was. A Gideon was handing out Bibles there at the Southern Steps or in the upper room. Are you hearing me? I'm joking right now. I'm being, I'm being sarcastic. There were no New Testaments. That would come from that moment forward. Isn't that remarkable? Can you find Jesus as Lord Christ, God, Savior from the Old Testament? You need to be able to do that. Every Christian should be skilled at doing that. I thank God, our youth, they're learning how to do that. So we look at this now, chapter 9, and it's this. How can you know if you're right? Well, because as we looked at before, or opened this up before, that a map was given to us that we would know the way. A map. Verse 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, verse 2, just the front end, but a tabernacle was prepared. Meaning that the first covenant, these ordinances, all of it, as I said a moment ago, were all types and symbols. Friends, listen. This shatters legalism in a moment. All of those things were types and symbols for us to be able to relate to God and to learn, I need innocent blood to approach a holy God. This God moves, he speaks, he manifests himself. And they learned how to know him. They learned God spoke to Moses. Moses came down the mountain and spoke to them about the God that he, that he had met on the mountain. And it's not like, well, why should we take Moses' word for it? They were at the base of the mountain. Do you guys remember what happened? Moses is talking to God at the top of the mountain in the cloud, and there's lightning and thundering for 40 days, and Moses is up there, and it must be some sort of, some I, I don't know what to say. Uh, he, he didn't eat, and he didn't drink a thing. How's that possible? It's not possible. It's miraculous. Apparently, when you're in God's presence, he takes care of his kids. And there, God bless Joshua. That guy, he's standing. Joshua is standing at the base of the mountain between the people who are fornicating all over themselves. Remember that? They said, we've lost Moses. Where is he? Let's build a calf and we'll go back to our old worship system, which was very pagan, very Ishtar. And they're doing their thing. And here's Joshua, 40 days. Can you imagine Joshua? Nobody talks about him. He's like this. He's waiting. Like a golden retriever. That's how you see, jo <laughs> That's how you see Joshua. What a guy. Moses comes down, his face is glowing. He has a, starts, puts a cover over his head because his face was beaming from the presence of God. And they start walking towards the children of Israel. And Joshua says, listen, the people are, the people are rejoicing. And Moses says, no, you got, you got that wrong. <laughs> and before he had a chance to tell them the Ten Commandments, they broke number one and, and number two, uh, three, four, <laughs> five, seven. <laughs> and, and what does Moses do? Moses takes the Ten Commandments and throws them down. And uh, you can read the fine print of what happens after that. It's quite awesome. 
I'll just sum it up by saying, he made them drink their God. Do you remember that? Wouldn't you love to see that? They grant, he, he, had, he had this golden bronze, whatever the piece of junk was, this ox ground up, and he made them drink it. I think that's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, idols are like that. You want an idol? You want to do that? Is that what you want to do? You can have it. And uh, it's powerful. But uh, the, the covenant, remember this. We, we left off talking about the, the fact that God made a promise in the covenant in the first revelation of himself as what we call the Old Testament. And God said, listen, this, I love saying what I'm about to say. God revealed himself in what we call the New Testament. And somebody might say, if they're a careful thinker, oh, see, that's where you guys made it up. Mm, no, he didn't. We actually got the promise of the New Testament from the Old Testament. Mark it down, please. If that comes as a shock to you, boy, you're going to get smart in a few seconds. It's Jeremiah 31. Watch this. Jeremiah 31. God says, Jeremiah, Old Testament, one of the most, one of the most revered prophets. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, listen, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, here it is, we call it being born again. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is the promise of the new covenant. That's the New Testament right there. You ought to take a picture of that. Send it to your Jewish friend right now. That's it. The promise of the new is in the old. It's the new that records that the promise was fulfilled. But that's not all. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. Listen, God's given us a map to know the way. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the old or the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh or one that is supple or, or a, a heart that's tender and sensitive. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, I love this, cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. Notice this. He didn't say, look at verse 27. Watch, I'm, I'm going I'm to deliberately mess it up. I'm going to require of you to cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. He didn't say that. You and I often think and feel like that. I'll read it again. He said, I will put my spirit, where? Within you and cause you. God does the empowering and God does the fulfilling. He does... He does the power. He's not only the engine, he's the fuel. That would leave you to hang on and go for the ride. Those statutes he'll put within us and we will keep his judgments and do them. Almost done with this part right here. It's no wonder why Jesus said the following. And I love this. I don't think you can separate these verses that we're reading. Uh, the, in my mind, they're just absolutely stunning. 
you got to remember, we're going back right now. What I'm about to read to you, 21 centuries ago, we're going 2,000 years back. And in light of those prophets that you just heard a moment, listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Okay, that's pretty radical. Because the audience church is Jewish. The audience hearing this is Jewish. They immediately think, what? That's menorah talk. That's temple talk. That's tabernacle talk. That's wilderness talk. That's a reference to God. They're listening to Jesus. Imagine, put your sandals on, go back in time. You hear him say, excuse me everybody, I've got something to say. You are the light of the world. And they had to be saying, what? Think about how shocking that must have been. We take so much for granted. Of course we do. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. A lampstand? We know what lampstands are. The lampstand is a, is a colloquial co- uh, comment of the menorah. In the book of Revelation, it says the seven lamp stands as though they were seven individual lampstands. Oh, no, no, no. No. That, that fumbles in the English language. The menorah of the Old Testament is the menorah that appears in the book of Revelation. Amazing. They understood what a lampstand was. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you understand how the impossibility of what we're hearing from Jesus? Imagine being back there in that moment, in that time. Jesus is saying to us that um, all this stuff he's saying is all temple talk. It's tabernacle talk. This is Levitical talk. And he is telling us that we're the light of the world and that we need to shine to a world. No, wait a minute. Once a year, a priest went into the room to the Holy of Holies, and he got to see all that. We'll never make it in there. God had something completely better in mind from the beginning. It wasn't going to be some religious site. It wasn't going to be some special place. The whole plan, everything leading up to what Jesus is announcing, Why do you think he came when he came to announce that you are the ones, those who would believe and trust in the scriptures and follow Christ, that because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, you would become not only the lights, but the priesthood, the witness, you would become the testimony. God would live his life through you. Didn't we just read, I will put my spirit in you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. How's that possible? He does it. Amen. He is the one that animates the temple. You. Verse 17 Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. You know, there's a lot of people today that say, We just read the red letters of Jesus. Have you seen these people? We don't read any, we don't read Paul, we don't read the Old Testament, we only read the red, we're, they call themselves red letter Christians. They're crazy. No, seriously. You know why? Because they don't like anything Peter said or Paul said, even though Peter and Paul are quoting and teaching from the Old Testament. But it doesn't fit their lifestyle. So they think 
we're red letter Christians. We know way more than everybody else because you're only supposed to read the red letters. The, that's the words of Jesus. Those other scriptures don't apply. Well, it's too bad Jesus didn't know that. <laughs> because Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So that's red letter and black letter and the space in between the letters. <laughs> For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, one comma and one hyphen will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Amen. That's what Jesus says about the Bible. Isn't that awesome? That's what matters. You want to talk about critics of the Bible? There's only one. It's God. And he says, yeah, that's my word. I recognize that. I said it. And everything I said and gave, gave to you, mankind, is going to happen just the way that I said. That's, that's how he rolls. And he says there that for a tabernacle was prepared. And I want you to be thinking about you. Right next to that verse, verse 2, you should write down your name or you should put down uh, this, this uh, date today because he's talking about you in a sense. For a tabernacle was prepared. It's ultimately going to that. Let me give you, um, I'm going to read something, but I want you to look at something. It's going to be kind of weird, but hear me out. First of all, the word prepared means to have put together, build, constructed. Noting that all earthly construction, right, is tainted by man's involvement, of course. But when God goes to work to build uh, his church, he uses flawed creatures. All of us are flawed. We're flawed. But in his redemptive work, he takes what's broken and he uses what's broken. And he, and he, he takes them from the path that they were on and puts them on a new path. And God at work in your life is so amazing because in our lives... In his redemptive work, he leaves enough residual in our lives for us to really have to make a big decision, people. You and I as Christians, you have been so set free from your past that you don't actually know how much you've been set free from your past. In fact, let me kind of use, a, I'll use it this way. You read the Bible, you get excited, you, you want God to use you, and you're thinking about heaven, and in the meantime, you're going you're gonna to share with people, you're going to love on people, you're going to help this homeless guy, and you're going to go help with, with this little baby, and you're going you're, you're gonna to live life. And then comes a thought. I had one of those thoughts, third service last week. After third service, this guy came up to me, and he said, hey, how you doing? great. How are you? I'm fine. You remember me? I don't like when people say that. Do you remember me? So I'm like, I'm, mm. I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. And he said, I went to high school with you. Uh, and so my mind it was like, I'm sure I went like this and it, because I work really hard at not remembering who I used to be. If I relax my brain, if I let down the guardrail, I can see my past life in technicolor. Are you hearing me? Don't look at me like this. The same is true for you. That's why we are to crucify the old man. 
on a, on a daily basis. Is he dead? Yes, he's dead. But a strange thing is the memory of him lingers. And to show you how liberated we really are, Satan reminds you of your past constantly. That means he's terrified. If I am observing an enemy and I'm trying to figure out my enemy, I listen to what he's saying because what he's saying is either what he is really meaning or not. And when Satan says, this whole thing, isn't it sweet? Look at you singing in church. Your little hands go up. (laughs) Makes you feel good, right? How sweet. But the truth is, remember, do you remember? And then you start, the thoughts start going. If you don't say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somewhere there's a Bible verse. I think Paul told it to the Corinthians. To bring down those thoughts that are challenging God and his promise and bring them captive under the authority of Jesus. I've got to take that thought and I've got to push it down and I've got to take the Bible because if I dwell on that, I'm just going to go down into a pit and sit there and it's not going to go good. Listen, a lot of people, good people, suffer unnecessary pain from the past because they don't know how free they are in their future. Every day, listen, isn't it funny? According to the Bible, our future is awesome. According to the Bible, our our present is awesome. According to the Bible, our past is awesome because it's all been washed away. But notice how Satan is. Satan doesn't want you to live into tomorrow and he wants you to be completely depressed right now in the moment. How does he do that? He only has the past to bring back into your life. That's all he's got. Tozer said, A.W. Yep, you guys ought to buy this book. If you don't have this book, buy it. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon for nothing. Almost nothing. It's a little tiny thing. It took him 28 years to write it, by the way. It's about a quarter of an inch thick. It's called I Talk Back to the Devil by A.W. Tozer. Stupid title, brilliant book. Because it almost sounds sacrilegious, I Talk Back to the Devil. Like, who am I? Oh, no, you got to read the book. Don't even, don't, do not judge this book by the cover. It is pure, awesome ability to fight the enemy with the word of God. When he says, I talk back to the devil, for example, in the opening argument of the book, he he says, when the devil comes and says to me, A.W. Tozer, you are a wretch of a man and you, you have had a horrible past. He says back to the devil, you are so correct. That's why you are such a good devil. You know all about my past, but you're terrified about my future. And he says, I want to remind you, old devil, that I belong to Jesus now. And all, listen, I'm quoting him right now. Watch this. He said, all the evil that I did in my life, I learned that from you. That's good. Put blame where blame is due. In Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You're a brand new person. And that's awesome. We're not, listen, I'm running, I'm, I can't believe it. So, I want you to look at this image. Hopefully it makes sense. So, I'm, I'm going to have the guys put this image on the screen. This is, a, this is a, a, a clay jar that's being broken. 
and that's light from within. That is not a Halloween. That's not a pumpkin. <laughs> I just realized that. That kind of looks like a pumpkin. It's not a pumpkin. It's a, it's a clay pot. It's a jar of clay. And it's illuminated with fire on the inside. It just looks this way. And I want you to look at that. And I want you to see the, the difference between the clay and the light. I'm going to be reading from the book of Judges. And they're going, to, they're going to leave this on the screen. So I'll just read. You can read it later. It's Judges 7. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise. And go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Church, are you hearing this? God has delivered your future into your hand through Christ. Well, what's going to happen? We don't need to. We don't even need to care. He knows. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Purah your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. That's sweet of God, isn't it? Are you getting you too scared to go down there in the dark by yourself? You can hold your friend's hand. Just go down there and listen. I want you to spy on the enemy camp. Then they went down with, then he went down with Bura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, that's a lot of people, were laying in the, va- laying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels, so that would be all these soldiers and camels would be like equivalent to tanks today, were without number as the sand by the seashore in, in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion said, answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. You got this, everybody? So Gideon's spying on what's being talked about, and this is what he's hearing. (laughs) The son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So this is God putting fear in the enemy's heart, allowing that to happen. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. This is kind of cute. He worshipped. It was spontaneous. Oh my goodness, God's, God's going to go before us. Woohoo! Uh, you can almost see his friend Pura. Shh, get it down. We can, we can worship God on the other side of the hill. <laughs> Control yourself. And so he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of, of Midian into our hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. So that's 100 each. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches. So the torches are inside the pots and they've got trumpets. They've got this pot, this jar of clay, burning torch on the inside so you can't see the torch burning and you've got trumpets and it's pitch black, pitch black night. And so uh, the outposts of the camp begin in the middle. Uh, so verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men went 
uh, where with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. That's why I wanted to see this image. That were in their hands. Then the 300 companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their, hand, in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. They stood. The Israeli soldiers just stood there with broken pots, light coming out of them in an instant of time. And the trumpet sound, can you imagine 300 trumpets blowing and this all these lights, think about this, all these lights start appearing on the hillside all around you. Had to be amazing. Um, and it says, look at verse 21, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army, that's the enemy, ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 uh, blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. The bad guys? The bad guys, they started killing each other, their own team. Like the Rams kind of did last weekend. <laughs> Throughout the whole camp, and the army fled. See, we can never do that. That's impossible. Of course it's impossible. Oh, this thing before my family is impossible. Of course it's impossible. Are you a Christian? Yes. That's why that impossible thing is in your life. I was talking to a friend today, and the topic came up. Why, why do the wicked, the, the, this is what popped up, why do the wicked seem to have it so well? You know, that's not, a, that's not an original question you have in your head. That's in the Bible. David said this, Job alluded to it, but David absolutely. And then the Bible says, David said, come on, God, the, the wicked, they, they got it easy. They have no problems, they're prospering. And he's just whining. And then, and then the, God, God speaks to him and says, you want to you see their end? You know, the end is, is the, the big deal. You know that? We're just passing through. It's the end that matters. It's how you finish. So God shows David. You want to see how they finish? You think they're going to drive that gold-plated donkey into heaven? They got a, they got a, you know, black chariot, tinted windows. You think they're gonna, you think they're, you think they're just gonna roll on into heaven with that? They're gonna tumble right straight into hell, David. You're sitting there. Oh, they got it so good, David. You should see their end. That's a powerful truth. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse five says. Second Corinthians four, verse five. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Watch. Who has shown in our hearts. Can you imagine this for a moment? Can you imagine a torch being placed inside of you? Let's just pretend for a moment. Imagine a torch being put inside of your chest. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. <laughs> That's our bodies. 
that the excellence and the power may be of God and not of us. Oh my goodness, I love that. We are supposed to be those simple jars. God was preparing. That's in verse 2, the preparation, the preparation. God had a plan. It wasn't some spot in antiquity. It wasn't some spot in history. We don't have to go back and pay homage and stand there and and burn incense and give food and flowers and and all the good old days. No, God's moving. And all of what was was to teach us how to be because God wrote wrote it all down. He communicates from heaven to Moses and says, basically, draw this picture and then build it. And I'll help the men who will be the craftsmen to do it. And you will see how I will lead my people and how this works. And the issue regarding sin, I'll show you how it's going to be forgiven. I'm going to give you guys, I mean, I mean this with all reverence. To God, it must have been like almost a, a, a playset, a toy. Because the real is in heaven. When God says, okay, this is, this is eternal. The, the ark, what Moses saw of the ark of the covenant in heaven is forever. Hey, Moses, make it after what I showed you. Make it like that. So we've got to find the ark. We have to find the ark. We don't have to find no ark. You don't have, listen, that ark was made by people. It's wood overlaid with gold. It was a type, a symbol to try to communicate to mere mortals that this is not only the holiness of God, but for you to approach the holiness of God, you're going to need the innocent, sacrificial Lamb of God Amen. to approach me. Amen. All of it pointed to him. I'm going to give you these verses and we'll be done, I promise. You ready? Right fa- uh, you're gonna, I'm, I'm going to go fast. You write fast. So, God has promised to prepare you and I a new place. Think of that. Not somewhere in the Old Testament. Not somewhere here and now. A new place. I'm very excited about that. John 14, you know it. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, mansions. That it's very ornate places to reside or abide. Mansion. That's why the translators threw the word mansion in there. They're actually accurate. It's just hard to understand. So am I going to have a mansion in heaven? You're going to have a dwelling place that is extremely wonderful. So the translators could only find the word mansion in English. You can't really actually describe it. And some scholars will say, it's not a building at all. It's actually your new body. Well, that's true too. I believe the answer is this. You get an amazing body, and you get an amazing place to live. Now, so how's that going to be? I don't know. But it's going to be. And you're going to... I don't think anybody's going to say, I don't know. I don't know if I want to live on this street. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, and he did, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Man, I don't know how clear that can be. People are arguing today, Jesus isn't really coming back. Then you got to cut John 14 out of your Bible. Uh, I wouldn't advise doing that, but you ought to just humble yourself and believe him. And he's preparing for us, he's preparing for you, a new you. Don't you want a new you? I want a new me. Ephesians 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the uh, apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, notice the talk, the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's you, the Christian, the believer, the follower of Christ. That's, that's, God, that's the new place. The new place is the new you. He's going to live with you, and you're going to live with him. It's not a dream. It's not allegorical. Well, you know, no, no, he says it. So what, what assurance do you have? Well, everything God has said in the past that has been fulfilled, he's fulfilled them literally. So you have 100% confidence that what remains, he will fulfill literally. Almost done. He's preparing for you and I a new temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, coming to him, that's us, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, Remember, Jesus was rejected. The chief cornerstone was rejected, as the prophet foretold, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the work of the priest, isn't it? To offer up offerings. That's who you are. Friends, listen, this world needs us, they don't even know it. We're the ones that can make intercession for those that even hate us. We can pray for those who can't stand our guts. And we can say, God, open their eyes to see. When your neighbor who hates you winds up having surgery or something happens or they're sick and you know about it, act on it. If you bake... Chocolate chip cookies, make sure you make them the best that day, right? If you make the best, whatever it is, take it to them, whatever it is, and say, hey, listen, I hope you feel better. You don't even have to say you're praying for it, because if you pray, then his heart rate goes up and has a heart attack. <laughs> just say, hey, just, you, don't have to, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be Billy Graham with a bunch of cookies. Just love them. Just love them. Watch what happens. But we're the priesthood now. If any mercy is going to get around this world, where do you think it's going to come from? It's got to come from us. Any grace, kindness, where's that going to come from? From the Christian. This world's getting all messed up and dark and everybody wants to cry about it. This is a golden opportunity. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I don't look at things always very normal. So you, you may disagree with me on this. The world's getting so bad that the least among us looks really good. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
The world is so dark and mean. Gosh, a friend of mine almost got killed on Monday. Somebody tried to kill him and shot the bullet. Just went past him, didn't get him. But uh, somebody tried to murder him. And that's a, this is a dark world. But you know, it's so dark that even the, little, even the little Christian who's just a little baby candle cake, <laughs> birthday cake kind of little candle Christian, <laughs> your light looks huge right now. Your light looks huge right now. So I'm not a very good Christian. Listen, whatever you have to shine, shine. And then, this is it, we end here. You can stand, really. I'm not playing. I'll let you go. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Doesn't it sound beautiful? When's the last time you had a good rest? I'm not talking sleeping. I'm talking rest. Your soul, your mind, your body, you're just, yes. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen, to the sound of the trumpet, but they said, we will not listen. See, it comes down to making a choice. It's best to listen to the Lord and have peace and rest. When we build up a wall and say, no, I'm not going to listen. We're such strange creatures. God says, come to me and I'll bless you. No, I'm not coming. (laughs) Uh, Look to me. I'm not going to look. What, what's wrong with us? It's best to say, Lord, I just, I just give it up to you now. And yes. God, I just, however you would have me to shine in this dark world, I'm willing tonight, Lord, to have you use me while we have the time. Amen. And tonight, if you're not sure who Jesus is, you can settle that right now. You can simply say, Jesus, I want to know you personally now I want to know what it's like to have my sins forgiven and to live guilt free Amen. man I, I live guilt free these people serving the Lord Roy's guilt free why are we guilt free and you're not guilt free it's because we know him it's not us it's him It's not what you know. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.